Hello, the reading is from Exodus, beginning at chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, And you shall make on it a moulding of gold around it. We move to Exodus 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to make one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to make one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the uppermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain, that is at the second set. The loop shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. We move to Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to to work in every craft. And behold, I have pointed with him a holiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of the meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, 
the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're continuing with the story of the Exodus. And today we're looking at the tabernacle. There's much to learn about God and ourselves from the tabernacle. But it can be a bit puzzling. You may already have a few questions from the reading that we just had. Well, do save them up, because I'm sure Rob will be delighted to answer them in another Q&A session at some point uh, not too far away. Jesus was great at answering questions. When he was on earth, he didn't have a tabernacle. It was in the temple court in Jerusalem where he would debate things with the temple lawyers. And someone came up to him with one of those big picture questions, like the ones we had for Rob last week, about the Exodus. What can we learn from Exodus? And just like Rob answered them last week, Jesus had a good reply. Let's uh, look at this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And I love the next bit. This teacher has the confidence to say, well done to Jesus. Great answer, he says. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask any more questions Now, I hope from the Bible's wisdom today and God's tabernacle plans that some of your big questions will be answered. But if not, please do dare to ask some more. Rob would love to hear them in a week or so's time. But for now, let's ask God for his help as we look at his word. Dear Heavenly Father, Jesus summed up the commandments by saying we must love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and then to love our neighbours as ourselves. Please teach us how this is possible. How can we live this way as we look at the tabernacle today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have to confess I completely failed to come up with three points today from these six chapters of Exodus. There's so much here. So uh, there is a a song of Exodus on your service sheets if you had a chance to look at it. And uh, if you follow that, it'll kind of follow where I'm going to go today. This is the first verse of it. God is holy, I am not. So here the rescue plan we've got. Escape from Egypt, saved by blood, God's chosen way to make me good. Yahweh. God who was and is and is to come, the Holy One, has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and is leading them to safety across the Red Sea. But he's not finished. He says to Moses, he's going to come and live in with them. 
He's going to be in the middle of the camp. And he gives Moses the blueprint for his tabernacle home. There are some 50 chapters of the Bible that mention or talk about the tabernacle. Can you imagine a grand designs episode on the tabernacle project? With Kevin MacLeod expressing concern about the plans. Is it within budget? Do you really need all those materials? Is it sustainable? Well, what can we learn about God from the Tabernacle Project, his grand design? A lot of people today don't know what the Bible tells us about God. No one showed them how to read God's word. They're more in tune with the idea that, well, maybe there isn't a God. Or if there is, some of the other religious ideas seem a lot more attractive than what the Bible says. They don't like what they hear from the Bible because they've heard a distorted view of it from people who've never read it, or if they have read it, they've read it trying to dissuade you that it's true. All they know of the Bible is that it expects them to live up to some kind of ideal standard, and they don't really like being told how they should believe. But deep down in their conscience, they all know that they really could do better with their lives. You see, they fail to meet even their own standards. What do politicians and celebrities do when they're found out today? Not to mention any names. They'll tell you their truth. It's their story which explains in their view, with their beliefs and their values, they're not that bad, really. Just ask their friends. They'll tell you how nice they are. And as far as they can recall, those nasty accusations against them didn't happen like that. So we are encouraged in our society to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. If there is a God, then he'd be nice to us. He wouldn't expect too much of us. He'd nearly always agree with us. He won't punish us because he'd always give us the benefit of the doubt. There'll be no problem getting into heaven because we're not that bad, really. But not everyone thinks like that. Some people really don't know how they can please God. They're in fear that they can ever be acceptable to him. There are glass half-empty people who are afraid of God because their God is harsh and they don't know how they can please him. We're in trouble, life is tough, and then you die. And so nowadays people go through their lives not quite knowing who God is. Never really knowing if they can believe in anything. Hoping beyond hope that maybe somehow they'll be okay with God whenever they meet him. Whoever he is. If ever they have time to think about it. Well today we're looking at the real God of the Bible. The God who came down to earth and revealed himself in history. The God who appeared to Moses in a burning bush and then in fire and thunder on the mountain. And he came to live with his people Israel and stayed with them for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. None of this is wishful thinking. None of this is just one person's truth. This is a story that happened in history and it's useful for us to understand who God is and where we fit in. So what does our passage tell us about the tabernacle design. 
What do we learn about Yahweh, the God who spoke to Moses on the mountain? The God who still is, and there is no other. Well, there's five quick things that we can work out from reading these chapters. Firstly, God has an eye for detail. He doesn't just give us the overall dimensions and shape, but we get every little detail of the furnishings and the materials. These are detailed plans from a detailed God who knows what he's doing. Secondly, he is straightforward. You know, his design is quite simple. There's nothing complicated about it or difficult for them to understand, unlike some flat-pack furniture plans you might have seen. Number three, he is orderly. This is quite mathematical. There's a square within a rectangle with an outer courtyard. It's all beautifully proportioned and there's a place for everything. Number four, he's more interested in quality than size. This isn't some vast cathedral. God has the universe to display his glory. He doesn't need to show off. But it will be costly to make. There's a lot of pure gold involved. Number five, he loves colour, design and craftsmanship. There's embroidery and decoration and colour. There's beauty in his design. Five quick things we can learn from the tabernacle design. But the big thing I want us to see this morning is the tabernacle shows us how God can live on earth with sinful people like us. Most significant thing about the tabernacle project is it's also a prophecy. When you look at the tabernacle, you are looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's how God will resolve the conflict that arises because God is holy and I am not. You see, if God was some distant deity who didn't mind how we lived our lives, who took no notice of our bad behaviour, then his holiness would not be a problem. He could just stay far away and let us get on without him. But the Exodus story, the whole Bible story, tells us that God's not like that. He deeply cares about people. He cared about his people. He wanted to rescue them from slavery. And he wants to live with us and be the one that we depend on for everything that we do in life. It's just that our disobedience, our selfishness, our wrongness disqualifies us from being in his holy presence. God will have nothing to do with our sin. So God tells Moses what to do. Build me a tabernacle. The tabernacle is God's big solution. Now, if you don't believe me, let me read a Bible verse and see if you know where it comes from in the Bible. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. One or two points for a right answer. Anyone knows where that comes from? Is it Exodus, Deuteronomy? No, it's on one of the last couple of pages of the Bible. It's in Revelation. The theme of God dwelling with us or tabernacling with us runs through the whole Bible. So how can God live with sinful people like us? The tabernacle explains that he will live with his people, but separately from them. There is a curtain around to keep you out. Ordinary people 
can only go into the first little bit in the outer courtyard. The tabernacle tent, which contains the holy place and the holy of holies, is off limits for ordinary people. That's where God lives. Only the priests could go near. Let's look at the tabernacle furniture because before the priests can approach God, they have to have sacrifices. They have to visit an altar and they have to wash. There are different metals used for this furniture, from the ordinary metal for the altar of burnt offerings, where the ordinary people could go, and the bronze wash basin, but it advances to the pure gold of the Ark of the Covenant, where God lived. It signifies the progression from ordinary sinful people to the divine perfection of God. Here's a cutaway diagram of the tabernacle where all the furniture is pure gold. With God depicted as a cloud over the ark. We're not quite sure how that would have been. This is the artist's depiction of it. Silver was used for the bases of the posts supporting the curtains and for their curtain rings. What does silver signify in the Bible? It's a ransom price. Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave's freedom is 30 shekels of silver. So as the Israelites wandered around the outside of the courtyard, the curtains supported on silver reminded them there's a price to pay if you want to enter into God's presence. And the colours of the cloth are significant. Firstly, there's blue. What's blue? Blue is the heavenly colour, colour of the sky. It was also the colour of the sapphire pavement where God appeared to Moses and the 70 elders on Mount Sinai. Then there's scarlet, which is the colour of royalty. The kings in the ancient world all wore scarlet. And purple is what you get when you mix blue and scarlet, signifying a high king who is godlike. The Roman emperors all wore purple. He wanted to be seen as a god ruling over kingdoms. Here in the tabernacle we have blue and scarlet and purple. And the materials are also interesting. For for example, there's fine white linen which depicts purity and clean living. It's the bride's colour. So the curtains around the outer courtyard, supported on silver and made of fine white linen, reminded Israel of God's holiness. That only those made clean in God's eyes were permitted to enter the place. You need to pay the ransom price to be clean in God's court. Now, of course, today we understand the significance of the tabernacle design because we see it with New Testament eyes. Things have moved on in God's rescue plan for the world. No longer does God live in a particular place like on Mount Sinai or in the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. Now he lives in people. John's Gospel tells us how God's dwelling place changed when Jesus arrived on earth. He says this, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. John uses the word tabernacled to talk about how the word, which we know means Jesus, lived on earth with people around him. Before Jesus came to earth, God lived in a building. Because nobody was adequate to contain him. He had a building made, the tabernacle, in Israel for 40 years while they're in the desert. 
And then it was the temple in Jerusalem when they moved into the Holy Land. But when Jesus came, the temple became obsolete. God himself was living in the flesh on earth. Do you remember what Jesus said in the temple court shortly before he was condemned to death? He said this, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And they laughed at him. They hadn't got a clue what he was talking about. But John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. The tabernacle of God is my body, he was saying. God was among his people, living with them in his body. But Jesus has now gone back to heaven. So where do you find the tabernacle now? God doesn't live in temples or cathedrals or auditoriums like this one. They may be suitable places for us to gather together, but we shouldn't say that any brick building is a house of God. If you want to see where God is tabernacling among us, then look around you. You might have to look beyond the masks, but God lives in his people. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? God is still living with people. He's still living on earth. But now he's living in the body of believers. The tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem have fulfilled their purpose. They point us to Jesus living on earth in his followers. And when the Bible talks about the new heaven and the new earth, it never mentions church buildings or temples or cathedrals or tabernacles. It's all about God living with people, tabernacling in perfect relationship with his people. But now let's look at how that tabernacle operated. What was the role of the priests, Aaron and his four sons? How did they dress? And why all those animal sacrifices? And what does it mean for us today? Do we still need priests? Well, as Rob reminded us last week, we can see what this means by looking at Jesus and seeing how he has fulfilled the old covenant by bringing in the new covenant. We no longer need someone like Aaron or his sons standing at an altar to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Jesus is our high priest who offered himself as the once and forever sacrifice when he died in our place to satisfy the justice of God. It works the same way as the tabernacle. If you want to see where God now lives on earth, look at the people of Jesus. If you want to see where the priests are today, look at the followers of Jesus. We are made holy by the blood of the Lamb. And now the sacrifice that we offer, which is pleasing to God, is ourselves. He's pleased when we bring honour to his holy name. When we point people to Jesus, we are living as his family on earth. Now I haven't got time to talk about all the details. There's so much detail in the tabernacle design. Each priestly garment tells us something significant about the way that Jesus makes us acceptable to a holy God. It was only with the proper clothes that the priests could approach God. And it's only through Jesus that we can approach God. Without suffering the consequences of his total hatred of anything that clashes with his purity purity and holiness. And we need to understand God's holiness. There's a lot of things that we think 
and say and do that clash with God's holiness. That's why Jesus reminds us that forgiveness is always a part of our prayer life. It's why we always pray to God through Jesus. We need his priestly robes. We approach God clothed in his rightness, his perfection. We could never approach God off our own backs, thinking that we're good enough. It would be like coming in filthy rags. And what about the sacrifices? Are you glad that you live in the new covenant? That the sacrificial system has been completed with Christ's sacrifices? That when he cried out, it is finished, as he breathed his last on the cross, there's no longer a need for us to cut up animals on the table and burn them on an altar over here and, and pick up the blood and sprinkle it all over the music stands and all over you and all over myself and all over the pulpit. I expect if I was to do that today, probably all of us would be offended and we'd think that it's totally out of place in a service of worship to God. What do you think you're doing? But that's what happened in the Old Testament tabernacle courts. We might find it offensive, but who asked for these sacrifices to take place? Not only did God ask for them, but they were pleasing to him. It's worth trying to understand that. Do you sometimes ask yourself, is God enjoying this service? Is it pleasant to him? Maybe we're not enjoying it. Maybe all this talk of Old Testament tabernacle, all this stuff that's out of date, what's the relevance of that to to me today? I'm not really getting this. But if God enjoys it, isn't that what we should care about? Isn't that why we came? So why does God enjoy blood? It's because God loves to forgive sin. And until blood is shed, he can't do that. When he sees the blood, he says, now I can forgive them. Now I can have a relationship with my people. Now I can come close to them. And that's what pleases him. At the heart of our Christian worship is the communion service, where we drink wine to remember the blood and eat bread to remember Christ's body sacrificed. And while it's on temporary hold, we must never forget it's only the blood of Jesus that's able to cleanse us and make us acceptable to God, to have a relationship with him by removing that barrier where God is angry with us because of our sin. The blood pleases him because it means that he can now tabernacle with us. I, I really can't cover everything. There's lots to mention. There's lots of numbers in, the, in these chapters. You have to look those up. There's the ransom tax. That's significant. The incense and the anointing oil were made with myrrh and frankincense. So there's gold, frankincense and myrrh, all used if you wanted to enter into God's presence. Do you see that God always planned for this to be a prophecy about Jesus? But I want to finish by looking at something we can't afford to skip over. After five chapters of careful design detail for the tabernacle, the priestly garments, the sacrifices, we read these words. Do follow them in chapter 31 and verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. 
For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. For six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Above all, God says, what tops everything that he's just said about all the detailed and beautiful design for his tabernacle and his operation, on pain of death, keep my Sabbath. Twice he says, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Why was this the most important thing? The last word before Moses was sent back down the mountain to see what the people had got up to in the 40 days that he'd been up there with the Lord. Well, of course, partly it's because, wouldn't it be foolish if Moses arrived down with the rules for living to give to Israel, the Ten Commandments, and then he said... Oh, you can ignore number four for the moment. We've got a bit of a rush job on. God wants us to build a tabernacle. So let's work seven days a week until it's done. No, they were to be holy people, reflecting God's creative pattern for work. Six days and then rest. Of course, we know, sadly, they never became the people of rest. They never reflected that pattern properly. Despite God. God's patience with them, they remain restless even after they enter the promised land. But there's a big lesson for us today here. I hope you don't just think that it means that we need to be Sunday observers. The one commandment that was never taught in the New Testament is the fourth one, remember the Sabbath day. Did Jesus observe the Sabbath day? Well, yes, he showed how to observe it properly. He didn't follow the negative rules that you can't do this, you can't heal people on the Sabbath, you can't eat something if you're hungry. He demonstrated by his calm and secure and deep dependence on his father that he was always at rest. He was Lord of the Sabbath, not a servant of it. He lived at rest seven days a week, 365 days a year. Even when he was betrayed, he was totally at rest. Not that he didn't go through agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not that he didn't cry and experience some of the deepest hurt when Lazarus died. He went through all the emotions that we went through. But he was always at rest in his father's plans for him. And that's what Jesus wants for us today. Not one day off a week where you might be embarrassed if anyone catches you popping into Waitrose. It's something far better. It's all explained in Hebrews 4, if you want to study it later. There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For we who have believed enter that rest. And it goes on to say, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Remember the creation pattern. Each day of creation ended with the saying, it was evening and there was morning the first day. 
repeated for six days. There was evening and there was morning, the second day. But on the seventh day, it says, and God rested on the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the works of creating that he had done. It never says that it was evening and it was morning, the seventh day, because the seventh day never ended. And Hebrews explains that's what's true for us. Through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, we can enter into God's rest that never ends. You know, some people are never at rest. They're always striving and struggling with something, the housework, looking after the kids, their ill health, looking good, making money, Even when they're doing the gardening, there is stress and grumbling. When you visit them, it doesn't feel homely. You can't relax in their presence. There's a tension around them. Like the Old Testament Israelites, they never seem to enjoy God's rest. So how do we experience that rest that Jesus knew? Do you know that poster called Footprints? The poem, the idea being that you look back on your life and you see that there are two sets of footprints in the sand. You and Jesus walking side by side. And yet you can see one section across the sand which disturbs you because you see there's only one set of footprints there when you're going through one of the hardest times in your life. And you wonder why the Lord deserted you. But then you hear the words of Jesus as he says, My precious child, I love you. I would never leave you during your time of trial and suffering. When you see one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Well, it's a nice illustration, and it's true to life, I think. Often in our darkest times of loss or uncertainty, when we're facing a crisis, we know the Lord being close to us. We know the Lord can carry us through. I've known that in my life. But it's the tabernacle that shows us how God solves our biggest problem. It's often in our time of plenty, in our time of self-satisfaction, that we distance ourselves from God. The times when we feel we don't need God, we can do this our own way. We know best. And in our defiance and following our own rules, We go solo. The people of Israel always had a curtain separating them from God. But that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died. We don't have a curtain now. We don't have the old tabernacle now or a temple. That was the old. Jesus has fulfilled the prophecy. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you can go in at Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. God now lives on earth in his earthly tabernacle, which is everyone who's been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and made into the new creation in Jesus. God lives in us by his Holy Spirit. And he's not a restless God. God is holy. And in Christ we find our perfect rest in him. If you live in Jesus, you are called to be at rest. Hebrews 4 says, 
Let, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. People of Israel had become an example of disobedience. Hebrews warns Christians that we should avoid following that example and make every effort to enter that rest. I think there's some irony there to make every effort to enter that rest. Jesus is how God solves the problem of our sin. How we can live with him in his holiness. In Jesus we are the tabernacle, God's dwelling place on earth, beautifully designed and crafted to reflect the one who made us. So that the world might see Jesus in us. And believe in the God who has revealed himself in history, the God who is holy, there is no other. I just have one final thought. There are two creations on view here. When God made the earth and all the universe, he declared that it is good and he rested from his work of creation. And everything that we can see reflects that, reflects God's holiness and majesty. As we look around and we see the flowers popping up, all the daffodils, the crocuses. As we go for our walk, our our, um, exercise walk every day and the little robin hops along the hedge beside you singing away reminding you of God's glory reminding you of the world that you've been brought into of course we know it's broken of course we see all the things that are wrong with it the tabernacle shows us also God's new creation we can also see his beautiful intricate design for how he will live on earth with his people Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away a bit. Behold, the new has come. We are the tabernacle of God, where God now lives on earth. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for what the tabernacle teaches us. Thank you that you always had a plan to rescue us from our wrongness. And bring us back to you. Please show us how to make every effort to enter into that rest with you. The rest that Jesus had when he had to live with all the trials and temptations of life that we still face. And yet was always at perfect peace, always at rest with you. And we ask you this, and we come before you now in Jesus' name. Amen.